0: A lot of the adoptees that come from privilege may not acknowledge that, and they may not even acknowledge part of their Korean identity. And for better or worse, their parents may not have introduced them to different adoptees or different people of their own race, ethnicity, and heritage background.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Colombian Influence. Woo-woo. Hey everybody. How's everybody doing? We are so excited to be back to another episode and another interview um, regarding a different type of transracial adoptee today. Considering it is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, um, we are going to be interviewing an adoptee from South Korea. So we're trying to kind of go with some, as you guys have probably seen already this year, um, some monthly themes just to kind of coincide with what goes on in our world um, just in the day-to-day. So we're super excited to talk to Brad. Um, I know his brother from college, so that's how we got connected and um, their family has a lot of um, adoption stories involved as well. So I'm really excited to dive in with him. All right. Well, guys, welcome back to Colombian Influence. We are being joined today by Brad Rudder. So welcome, Brad, to our interview today.
0: Thank you, Risa and Erica, for having me here today.
1: Of course. So... Um, as I mentioned in our intro, I know Brad's brother from college, so um, he kind of got us connected to talk a little bit more about, um, well, I guess, you being our, I think, first Asian adoptee that we have, so that's pretty exciting, and I understand that, um, I know you and Alex have kind of differing uh, stories regarding that, some especially just being your being, you um, reunion with birth family. So we're going to talk about that a lot today, but let's just start to get to know you a little bit. Um, Where are you from? Um, How old were you when you were adopted and from where? How old are you now and where are you living these days?
0: So I am Brad again and I currently live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I'm from Eau Claire and that's actually where I first went to um, when I was adopted. My parents lived with my two older siblings in northern minnesota for quite some time i was adopted from south korea in a town or city called taegu i always get the pronunciation mixed up <laughs> and i was roughly 10 months old when i was adopted
2: 10 months okay we were both 3 months so it's kind of interesting to see 10 months you know usually it's a couple of years old or just a few months but is the right in the middle Yeah. Do you know, is the process pretty long um, for adoption?
0: So I know for international adoption and specifically with what my parents went through, it's a quite a long, extensive process. And it takes, I want to say several months. I was probably four months old when they got my file, perhaps. And then it took Mm. another six or seven before I actually came oh. to the US
1: okay so was the timeline pretty similar then for um, your brother and your sister as well around 10 months?
0: I think that mine was delayed. I think the as time moved on adoption processes got became different so
1: oh, gotcha. I think
0: that it just progressively got a little more difficult
1: Sure. Um, So then you said that you came back to Eau Claire, and that was when you were about 10 months old. And what is the um, age difference with your siblings?
0: So I'm 23, and my older sister is 28. And my brother Alex, who you know, is, oh gosh, this sounds horrible. I better not mess this up. He's 31.
1: (laughs) It's hard to keep track. (laughs) I get it. Once it gets after 25, it's like what is it? It doesn't even matter anymore. (laughs) So I feel you. Okay. So 31, 28. Okay. So then there was a five-year age gap then between your, you and your sister and are all three of you, um, from South Korea.
0: Yes. So all of us are from South Korea, from different parts in South Korea and the million dollar question. No, we are not biologically related. (laughs)
1: You know exactly what's always on everybody's mind. We Definitely. get that kind of question all the time for people who are siblings, but, you know, all adoptees. So then when your parents uh, went through the adoption process for all three of you, did they go through the same um, like agency through the States? Yep.
0: So I believe that it has changed now. So in South Korea, they went through SWS, which is social welfare society. And then in Minnesota, they went through Children's Home Society, which is now Lutheran Social Services.
1: So obviously, then, given the fact that it is international, we all pretty much know that it's closed. There's not really much such thing as being open if it's international. Um, Do you know much about, like, prior to, I guess, prior to searching for biofamily, did you know much about the circumstances around your adoption?
0: So I really didn't know too much about my adoption other than you hear for Korean-American adoptees specifically that it probably was a situation where the mother was unable to care for the child, mother was too young, or the mother was going to raise a child without a father, which culturally is very difficult in South Korea. So I knew that more or less, and I didn't really question it wasn't really important to me until I got to be a little older and I talked with my parents about learning more about my adoption. And they said that I could do a birth search when I turned 18. So when I turned 18, they gave me my file and I went through it and they honestly hadn't looked at it in 18 years. And a lot of the information was surprising to them. Actually, I learned more about my birthplace, the timeline and my birth parents. So I believe that my birth mother was 19 years old and then my birth father was 21 years old. And it was a situation in which the birth mom and father were dating. And I believe that they were in high school, but to be honest, now that I think about it, the ages really didn't add up. So I think they might've been not saying the ages correctly on the file, but Mm. the story I'll tell you later on too, didn't, doesn't match up now that the ages are put there because they said that they were high school lovers and then she got pregnant and the families told them that they had to split up. And after I was born, she never saw him again.
2: Whoa. And is that culturally normal to, if you're too young for the families to make you split up or is that just kind of their family? Circumstantial. hmm
0: I would say maybe a mix of both. As I was saying before, in South Korea, it's very difficult to raise a child on your own. And if you don't have plans on being married or Mm. raising a child together, my birth mom would have had to raise me on her own. And she was still in high school, I believe. So it really would have been difficult. And the parents were upset. And they really wanted them to continue in their education and not have their life essentially ruined by being teen parents. So yeah, they split them up.
2: Okay. Wow.
1: So going back then to, um, your family that you grew up with, uh, do you know some circumstances regarding like why they chose to adopt? Obviously they adopt specifically, you know, three children all from South Korea. Do you know much about the reasons why?
0: So, my parents were unable to have children of their own and they really wanted to have children. Um, this was made evident because I think that the new favorite child is my niece, their first grandchild. <laughs> uh, <my sister's laughs> child, And it's very clear that they really love children and just
1: Aww. having them
0: around. So I can't imagine the sadness, maybe frustration and anger that they experienced when they found out that they couldn't have children of their own. And they heard a lot about South Korea, and the rest is kind of history. They filed paperwork, and here they are. Here we are, I guess, I should say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. So what is your relationship like with your parents?
0: So my relationship with my birth parents, adoptive parents, or?
2: Uh, Adoptive parents.
0: Okay. So it's interesting. I hear the word adoptive parents a lot, and it's, I don't know. It's, I don't get uncomfortable much with adoptive or like biological, like lingo, Mm -hmm. I guess, adopty lingo. But when people say, Oh, you're adoptive parents, that's the one thing that makes me a little uncomfortable just because they're my parents and you'll hear me refer to them as that throughout. I don't know about either of you.
1: Oh, we're the same. We're
2: exactly the same. Absolutely.
0: So my parents and I have a really close relationship and I'm very thankful and fortunate for that. I'm not sure about domestic adoptions, but at least in the international adoptee community, there's a lot of adoptees that have struggling relationships with their parents, a lot of abusive, like emotionally abusive families and households. And it really makes me sad. And it really has made me even more thankful for how close I am with my parents that I'm able to be open with them about so many different things, able to have them in every aspect of my life
1: oh that's awesome was it always like that growing up would you say or was there I don't
0: yeah know say it's the- always been like that for sure it's that's awesome if anything it's gotten better as time has gone on and as we've become adults and just sharing different aspects of our life and just learning different things about my parents as they get older and share more about their youth and their early twenties and Mm -hmm. relating to them a little more.
2: Oh, that's awesome. I feel like we're in kind of in that same boat too, where you're just getting closer to your parents, the older you get.
0: Definitely.
1: So from what I know, you have done the search for your birth family. You said uh, previously that this kind of started when you turned 18, you asked your parents and they went through this file with you. Um, Can you just walk us through that whole journey and like, You know, since now you are 23, it's been uh, quite a few years now. What's that been like?
0: Yeah, so it was about a six-page file or six-page booklet, I should say. And it had all information about me, information that I've known, but also new information. So I went through it and it had like my case number, my birth date, my birth weight, height, and then my Korean name and my full name is Bradley Allen Hyunsu Rudder. And so they kept my first name in there, or I guess I should say last name, because in Korea, you do your last name first,
1: mm-hmm.
0: followed by your first name. Mm-hmm. So they kept that part in all of my siblings and I's legal names. So we um. have that. And so that was really interesting to see on the page. And I actually saw my Korean name, last name for the first time which I think it was the first time. I don't know. They've probably told it to me before, but I've just forgotten it. But,
1: well, and seeing it, I think, is also mm-hmm. a little different, too.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. It also was just kind of anticlimactic because I didn't learn too much. The more important thing was seeing the biographical information about my birth mother and birth father
1: mm-hmm.
0: and seeing just different information about them and... It had brief case notes about the consultation that she had. I think she gave me up a day after I was born, a day or two. Like mm-hmm. she first went into counseling a day after I was born. And then the next day, I think I was given to a um, foster family.
1: Oh, okay. interesting. So were you in foster, like a foster family for a while or?
0: I believe I was in foster care for about, those 10 months before I was adopted.
2: Okay. Interesting.
0: Yeah, so I think that's very common practice in Korea. I would have to huh. ask some of my friends about that because I know each one of our cases is a little
1: different. Sure.
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Still, that's really interesting though. I haven't heard of... I guess we don't know a lot about Korean adoption either. That's obviously kind of why we are why we have you here. Um, but that's definitely very different from both Erica and I, as well as I think some of the older adoptees that we know from like our orphanage where they were maybe a year old or so. And I guess I would have to double check, but I don't know that that was a common practice there. So that's really interesting. And I I imagine that has something to do with like a cultural thing and in Korea.
0: Yes. So the way my mom explained it, which is interesting. So normally adopted children or children put up for adoption go into go into foster families and they stay there until they're adopted and if there's no adoption then they would maybe transfer to an orphanage.
2: Oh. Right. Okay.
0: So that's my experience with it and I know that it's shifted back and forth and everyone's sure. mileage varies with that, especially with my older siblings and then even newer Korean adoptions mm-hmm. are pretty different than to what they were even when I was adopted.
1: Um, So I guess going back then to the, um, you found out a lot of things from your file about your, you know, birth parents. Um, Is there a search process after that, that you, you know, eventually dove into?
0: So yes, I started my search off actually with 23andMe. And that was something that actually I'm very thankful for the Korean American adoptee community is, I would say, a very tight knit community, specifically on Facebook. That's a really
1: oh, that's so cool
0: community. It can be intense at times, with many fiery personalities on there. People have very intense and also very diverse perspectives and mm-hmm. worldviews on life and adoption itself. And there is a very generous Korean adoptee named Thomas Park Clement, and he donated a 23 Me kit to any Korean American adoptee that wanted it. Oh my said, gosh. In 2015, I received a 23 Me kit and I completed it with my sister. And oh my honestly, gosh. it was kind of anticlimactic there too, didn't learn too much. But I did get connected with a few second cousins.
2: Really? Wow! That's, cool.
1: That's really awesome. We we did a 23andMe. Uh, what was it now? A couple of years ago, and we just did a giveaway um, for one actually for the holidays. So, but yeah, the 23andMe is like a really cool um, you know piece of information just to kind of get to know your DNA a little bit better. But you mentioned this was kind of anticlimactic for you. Was there? Did you just? hope that there would be more coming from this and had to go elsewhere? Or What was kind of your thought process after this?
0: So as you know, with 23andMe, you also get ancestry data and just some other information. I don't know why I really hyped it up and I'm not sure what your 23andMe results show, but mine drastically shifted over the past five years. So it showed a very significant portion of Japanese DNA, Um, in my ancestry, Japanese ancestry in my DNA. And a lot of Koreans were upset by that. There's a lot of, I would say, just tension between Koreans Mm -hmm. and Japanese Americans, or just even abroad. And to show that you have more Japanese or Korean in your DNA can cause some conflict, And Mm -hmm. a lot of people that actually contacted their birth families that are Korean American would have conversations and their parents would say, Oh no, you don't have any Japanese in you at all. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of unique because how can you say for sure? First of all, and then second of all, there's just that intense sort of conversation about that, where you just want to know part of your DNA. And Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's, it's not whatever, but It's just another part of you that doesn't, like, really identify you as a whole. But that was just unique, and it has shifted from, I think, 93% Korean from 2015 to about 99% Korean now in 2020, 2021 now.
2: I haven't checked mine in a really long time, but I know ever when we first did it, it showed... A lot of European, but I know those numbers have changed. I should check it again just to see.
0: Definitely do that. And I'm really glad that they finally re-released the health reports just to see, like, tendencies and things. I'm not sure if you've seen that. But I think a lot of mine are pretty spot on.
2: Oh, did you connect with their second cousins then? Or what was the next step after seeing your 23andMe results?
0: So I did my 23andMe results. And there's actually someone on Facebook at the time, like I said, the Korean American adoptee community was very tight knit and he analyzed the DNA match results and would connect you to other Korean adoptees and show you like how strong that connection was because 23andMe has their own algorithm with how strong your biological relation is. And I actually had a very, I had a high biological DNA match with another Korean adoptee and one of the best ones in the group. And it was really unique. It turned out just to be second cousins predicted, but it's still really cool. And I think we have some more in common than I previously thought. Just based off of social media, I never really talked with her. We just chatted a couple times and that was unique. She has a very I'd say intense, fiery personality. And I am known to be very similar. So it was just unique to see some of those similarities.
2: That's, That's so, so cool. So I cool. love that you have that support from that group. I mean, to get a kit, to have people just be there and try to help people just find who mm-hmm. they are is so amazing. A lot of people are missing that resource and for them to have that, it's amazing.
0: Definitely. So I'm very thankful for 23 me I... I'm interested in seeing what happens in the future because you always hear people say, Well, I did 23andMe a year or two ago, didn't even Mm -hmm. think about it. And now I found someone that I'm related to. And Mm -hmm. I think ultimately that's what I was hoping for. But also, it was really scary, if I'm being honest, just preparing the spit sample. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, do I really want to do this? (laughs)
2: And this is so
0: serious. And I'm like, I need my results now. Hurry up.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, whatever.
2: Yeah. So
0: in regards to the process of my birth search, so I did that and that was sort of unrelated, but it was something that I was able to do. And I actually learned this from a trip from Korea that that I went on. I guess I can go into that first. That would make most sense. So this was really sparked by a trip I took to Korea. There is a, there's actually a lot of different, American Korean American organizations. I would say U S based organizations that sponsor trips to Korea for Korean adoptees. So I went on one out of Chicago. It was called the Chicago Arirong lines club. And it was a really great trip. So they pay for the majority of your costs to go over there. Um, I think you just have to pay airfare. You still have to apply and stuff, write essays and it's essentially a homecoming tour and my brother went on it, my sister went on it, and I oh, went on it. So that was my graduation present. That was each of our graduation presents when we graduated high school.
2: Wow, well, so, I love that so much. That's yeah, amazing.
0: It was a really special trip. And it's unique because for my brother, I think it was maybe a difficult experience. For my sister, it was an absolutely amazing experience. And for me, it was somewhere in the middle, maybe mm-hmm. a little than like my sisters, but I still found it really enriching and very memorable. I still think about it every once in a while. So we go on that trip, and it's only with Korean adoptees. So I went with a group of about 15 to 20 different Korean adoptees. And for some people, that's one of their first times meeting Korean adoptees. Wow. And I'll go into it a little more after, but... That was a really unique experience to go with people that had been to Korea for mostly the first time and wow. travel around the country, experience different things. And I think it was really important for me to go over there and experience it because it was a lot different than I was expecting it to be. I think a lot of adoptees romanticize what their homeland was. Is like, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. but it was really grounding in the sense that it really showed me what was real versus what was perception. It showed me reality versus my daydreams.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. How many, how long were you guys in South Korea?
0: So we were there for about two weeks. So okay. a good chunk of time, I would say half of it was spent jet lagged but also oh, yeah. back to the trip. So it was something every single day and the Lions Club over there actually sponsors I want to say a large portion of the costs. So they actually have a ceremony there and we get to go and attend and it's all in Korean and most of us don't speak Korean. I don't really speak Korean. I the, actually that's a lie. I don't speak Korean. I don't at all. I <laughs> basic greetings, but that's about it. And (laughs) it was really unique. And we each were given a hanbok, which is a Korean, a traditional Korean formal wear, I want to say. And so each one of my siblings and I have one of those from when we went over. And then each one of us that went on the trip there were presented with one. So we sent our measurements in a couple months before we went on the trip so we could have it waiting for us when we were there.
1: I, I love your mention of just like getting that traditional wear because I've seen a lot of those before and it's such a really cool, unique part of like the Korean culture, too.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. So my niece's first birthday is coming up in about a month and we're going to do a hanbok photo shoot um, with her. So oh we'll break it out. I haven't worn it in. Wow, almost five, six years now. So,
1: Oh my gosh, how fun! And also, isn't... Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the first year that... Um, like, is a really big deal in Korean culture? Like, first birthdays? So, a
0: first birthday is very significant because... For a couple different reasons. And I'm not totally in tune or t- in touch with Korean culture wholly. But with... The first birthday, there is a ceremony. It starts with a D, but I forget the full name. And you set the child down, and there are three objects traditionally in front of the child, which will determine their future. Oh, that's I right. Think. So there's money, which would signify that they will be rich when they get older. Food, which means they'll never go hungry. And then th- there is... Um, calligraphy pen or brush which would signify that they'll be a scholar or smart very intelligent when they grow up so I'll be curious to see which my niece picks and then you can also do it with different objects it's not supposed to be a high-pressured thing it's just supposed to be fun
1: yeah oh That's my gosh cool. how fun I love that you guys are celebrating that in that way like and just going back to that tradition that is going to be so cool
0: mm-hmm Definitely. Oh, my
1: God.
0: I think it, it's really great. And my sister's doing what my parents did. And my parents were very good at including, I would say they were exceptional at including different cultural aspects into our lives. So every single year on our arrival day, I'm sure you all know your arrival days. So they glammed it up, I would say, even they called it our anniversaries of arrival into the U.S. So, every year on our anniversary is almost like a second birthday that we would celebrate it. And when we were younger, we would watch our arrival videos and really get to remember those and then have a special meal with gifts and so It was really special that they recognized it and they still do even as we're older. So I really appreciated that. And we went to, cultural camps when we were younger. There's one in Minneapolis and it's not as big now, I don't think, but it was called Korean culture camp. It was at Minnehaha Academy the first week of August. And each year there'd be hundreds of Korean adoptees. I think that Minneapolis St. Paul area has a lot of Korean adoptees. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So that's where the camp was held. And I know there's some in different major cities around the U S And so they would fly in teachers or just professors from Korea, just people from Korea in general to come in and teach us about Korean culture, different Korean adoptees would come in and teach classes. We would have a Korean meal every day. There'd be Korean snacks and (sighs) it'd just be a really good way to get to know other Korean adoptees. And so (sighs) I feel very fortunate that I got to know a lot of Korean adoptees growing up. And so before, when I said there's a lot of personalities, a lot of fiery opinions, both one way or the other, it really prepared me well for getting to know different people in the world in general, but also just to know that even within the world of Korean American adoption, that not everyone's going to think the same way that you do.
2: Wow. Wow. That is so cool. I love that they just incorporated your culture. I think that's a huge thing. I went to a camp for, um, you know, La Semana that was for South American adoptees and kind of the same thing. They just had different life classes about adoption. You had food, you know, just the culture of anything, you know, that you're missing is so nice to just have that as an option. So that's really cool that your family did that.
0: Yeah. It's something that I'm really appreciative for. And I still get to be in contact today, not nearly as much as I used to, but still having Korean adoptees yeah. that I can reach out to yeah. and even seeing different people's reunion videos. It's yeah. really something else that I'm really enjoyed being a part of.
1: Yeah. So obviously your parents were, you know, they found nurturing this, this cultural side of you guys, um. You said that the, the trip was only for the K- Korean adoptees, so I assume they were not there for that. Is that correct?
0: Correct. My parents were not on that trip. They sent each one of my siblings on it, and they did not go. So during each adoption process, I believe that they were allowed to go over to visit. I want to say the orphanage, but none of us were in orphanages. They were... <laughs> I think they were allowed to go over or encouraged to, but it was a pretty significant expense to add to it. And especially Mm. each time that they would have to bring another child along, like for mine, they would have to bring over my brother and sister.
2: Mm. So that
0: was an expense, but they haven't gone yet. I'm still hoping that we can go over someday. I'm not quite sure yet if I want them over there when I do, or if I do a birth family reunion with my birth family, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely something that I would consider.
1: So then the trip happened when you, that was a graduation present. Was that um, like post high school graduation then?
0: Yes. Post high school.
1: Post high school. Okay. So then after the trip, was that when you started to look into the actual family search or had that already begun or, and what, how long was that process also?
0: So I feel very lucky. A lot of times people's birth search processes last months or years. So essentially mm-hmm. what happened was I went on the trip in June. I started the process in July with 23 and me and got those results. And then I think I submitted my forms to different adoption agencies. I think I sent them out to three different agencies and i only heard back from one i was sending personal information out there and still didn't get a response from some of them but one of them responded and i sent that out in august and then early september i heard that they had a match
2: oh my My gosh. gosh that's really fast
0: yeah i want to say the whole process was maybe two to three weeks that they found her
1: oh my goodness that is so fast so then yeah. how do you wrap
2: your head around that? I mean, starting the process is already, you know, your heart's beating, you know, you're you're sweating a little bit, a little nervous, and now everything's just happened in a blink of an eye.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think maybe I'm still underwhelmed by it all. It was definitely overwhelming, but mm-hmm. it's something that I was just thinking, you know, I want to do it. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. a lot of adoptees don't go in knowing the full extent to which they could hear back. There's many different options that you could hear back, Mm -hmm. either not found, maybe the mother went through a traumatic situation and that was the consequence of your birth. There are a lot of different things, maybe a horrible illness.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Maybe they don't want to talk with you, or maybe you do talk with them and then it ends up horribly. So
2: Yeah, so many scenarios. You cannot prepare for all of them.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think I was very mentally prepared for all of that.
2: That's really, I think that's really good advice for anyone just trying to do the search because it is overwhelming. It's so emotionally um, almost draining in a sense, just because, again, all these different scenarios, you don't really know what to plan for. And with me being a planner, that was extremely hard. Definitely. (laughs) So, um, gosh, what was I going to say? I guess. Go ahead.
0: I'll say one more thing about that regarding like what to prepare for. I think the hardest thing for me, well, this wasn't the hardest and it really shows the good experience that I had mm-hmm. because not everyone is fortunate or lucky to have a seamless and smooth birth search, birth search process, mm-hmm. But I didn't even realize that your birthday could even be marked differently or they could make one up for you. And I think that really would have been difficult for me personally. But I still went in. I do a worst case scenario list and I had them all mentally written down for myself. And luckily nothing horrible came out of it. But there's a lot to consider that you don't even think about. And those oh, yeah. were just one of the lesser ones.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you always wanted to search for your birth family?
0: I would say yes. Okay. I've always been a curious person, always been inquisitive about what's this, what's that, who's that. And my parents were always very open about my adoption, our adoptions in my family and, it was never something that I wanted to search for out of spite or out of any malicious intent. It was just something I was just always curious about. And I think for me, as I was getting older and still now, I want to know more about my genetic history, my health history, because it's really difficult going to a new doctor and then saying, well, I don't know my health history.
2: And especially
0: as I get older, because I know I, my eyes aren't always the best. And is there something coming down along the road? Is there anything else specifically that I should be looking out for? And sometimes ignorance is bliss, but it's not I... something that <laughs> yeah. it's forced upon us.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, the medical side of it, we totally get that. I mean, that is a... It's a really unusual way to be reminded just in a mundane activity is like going to the doctor and every single time, regardless of the fact that you've been to this clinic, maybe for your entire lifetime or even five years, it's like, so is this in your medical history? It's like, I don't know. That's all I have. I was adopted. That's all I have. And it's, uh, yeah, that's just, that's a whole different thing to have to, you know, deal with as an adoptee. So we totally get that side. That's a huge component for both of us. And as we, of course, are, I don't want to say aging, but (laughs) I guess as we're getting older, you know, more things like you, like you kind of use your, you know, eyesight as an example and things like that. It's like, all right, is this just, what does this mean? Like, does this mean anything? You know, those kinds of unanswered questions are really, can just be an added weight for, I think for adoptees.
0: Definitely. And So this is a good segue into talking about my birth family's genetic information. I'm lucky that I had a Korean family that I went to school with in Eau Claire and acted as a translator for when I did eventually find my birth family. And honestly, I think the conversation for her was harder than it was for me. Honestly, for me, it was just another conversation, but my birth mom and my friend's mom were crying the entire time. Oh. Oh my god! it was a very emotional conversation for them. Like, yes, it was emotional for me, but I think they were more invested <laughs> in it than I was. And she was letting me know about genetic information. And to be honest, I don't even know if what she said was true because who wants to admit about passing on a horrible genetic history So that was something that I was told, take with a grain of salt. They said a few things, but overall they said that they were very healthy. And hopefully that's true, but you never know. And so that's something that I had to consider. And I'm very thankful that I had a friend in Eau Claire that I could just drive over to and see and have his family translate for me. Because Korean is a very difficult language and it's something that... I don't foresee myself mastering in this lifetime.
1: Okay. So then that was like your initial first conversation. Was that then like via like a Skype or something like that?
0: So even that's really difficult because calling long distance to Korea is very expensive. Mm -hmm. So this family had a long distance like phone plan, I believe. And so it was really easy. And I was listening to the dialing, I swear it was about 30 numbers that she was punching in there because I had the phone number, but she had to enter area codes, local codes, exit codes out of the U S something like that. And she was very generous for translating for me and doing that. So I had a list of questions. I actually have it at my home in Eau Claire, the initial conversations that we've written down and just questions I've had and answers it was just a back and forth conversation and I guess even before that we had email exchanges and it was really unique because the social worker in Korea had to translate them into English and then translate my letters back into Korean and I wonder if there was anything lost in translation because she gave the originals at time but still it's possible that not everything was translated
1: whoa Yeah, that's something to think about. I've never, I mean, yeah, I guess there can't really ever be a way of knowing like 100% unless you or someone that you know and trust, like learns it completely and can give you every single word, you know, as you're going through that. That's crazy.
0: Definitely. And I'm very thankful too that my friend's family, that he had, I believe that his mom told me everything because she told me that. A lot of times, maybe the translator would leave things out and wouldn't tell me bad news, even if I was told it, just due to respect and to pride Mm -hmm. for that family. That happens a lot. So in Korea, just as an example, when you are ill, the doctor might tell your family before they tell you, because sometimes if it's... If you have a deadly or fatal illness, the doctor might tell your family before telling you or ask the family if it's good to tell you because there's more of the collective interest in society rather than the individualistic society we have in here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that's just one instance of how it can really transfer into information for adoptees. So is it best left untold?
2: Wow. I've definitely thought about that because when I met my birth mom I had a translator and I'm just like first I was just I feel like I blacked out because seeing her in person it's like okay what's happening but (laughs) I've also thought about it are they telling me exactly are just things that I want to hear because I know a lot of Mothers did that when they're filling out the forms, too. Like, what would a US family like to know about me? You know, like, oh, I had an education when she really didn't. You know, there's a lot of those unknowns still, even when you know, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around sometimes. So, I guess, what is the next steps for you?
0: So, next steps for me kind of vary. I think my life has really been changed. Due to the pandemic, I think Mm -hmm. professionally, I had a lot of different goals in terms of additional schooling and eventually living in Korea for a while. I really wanted to move over there again and do a reunion. And I'm not sure what it's like in Colombia, but I really wanted to gain my citizen, restore my citizenship back. And that's a process that you have to do over there. You can't do it from abroad. So I wanted to do that and visit them and learn more about my birth mother and birth father. But I'm not sure now because I do have a job here and not sure if it's the best move to move abroad right now, even for a short term period of a couple months. So I'll reevaluate again, but I sort of stopped reaching out to my birth family just because it started to feel like it was hitting a stone wall mm. as in what now what do we contact about so I really haven't mm. contacted them in about two years so the main correspondence was over email and then we called every couple months with that translator and now it's email and maybe something will happen again I really think I should reach out but I don't know. It's kind of a mystery at this point and I'm okay with that.
2: Mm-hmm. As long as you're, you're comfortable and okay with kind of where it's at right now. I mean, it doesn't mean you won't ever see her or meet her or your family, but I get that. It's hard to adjust your whole life. I mean, moving across the, the world to a whole other culture is already one thing, but then to find your birth family and reconnect is a whole nother emotional roller coaster, so. Definitely. I respect you for being content with where you are, and you you still have some answers, which is nice. It's not like you're left unknown. Definitely.
0: I feel very fortunate Mm
2: -hmm. to
0: know who my birth family is and have seen photos of at least my birth mom. My birth father, I think, has some shame in showing me who he is. That's really who I'm interested in seeing and seeing if I look like him. Yeah and Mm -hmm. see more about his life, but he's been a little shut off, Uh, and that's okay. That's well within his right. He still will respond via email to me, and I find that to be very nice in a sense that he's at least trying.
1: Sure. Do you know anything about, like, after the faculty, after you've connected with them, and obviously, just as much as you're willing to share, do you know anything about if they are in conversation together still are they in any any type of friendship relationship, anything at all?
0: So after I was born, they didn't have any contact, and because the families broke them off right. and it wasn't actually until that I did my birth search that they contacted each other again because wow. my birth mother uh that's who I found first. And I said, well, I have interest in finding my birth father. Who is he? And she said, I haven't contacted him since you were born. Our families broke us up. And she told me, okay, but if you want to, I'll search for him. I think I know where he is. And so she contacted him, and that was the first time that they talked since I was born. And they actually both have their own families now. Wow. I don't believe that my birth mom has any children, other children. But I think my birth father does. I think he had a two-year-old when I asked last, and that was, I think, four years ago. So he probably has a six-year-old child at this point.
1: Wow.
2: That That's... is so special that she would just kind of put, you know, her pride aside and just help you out.
0: Definitely. I think it was a risky move, too, because imagine. she's married now, and neither of them are comfortable talking about it hoping, mm-hmm. openly because of the risk of what it could do for their marriage. So I'm very thankful for any contact that I get now.
1: For sure. Wow. That's so crazy. I mean, every, every reunion story is very different and every international adoptee story is very different, especially just kind of when it goes by different countries and cultures and stuff, there's so much, there that's going to be different from one person to another and that's just that's so cool that she was that she took that upon herself to do that so to at least have something from
0: that side anything at all
2: yeah
0: for them knowing where i am and having a photo and having my contact information because i haven't really gotten anything from them but i think it's comforting maybe to them maybe it's not that's something that I don't think I'll ever be able to fully understand. I understand that it's difficult giving a child up for adoption, but I was talking with my sister and she said, I have a newfound respect for my birth mom. I used to think that it was something that was done prematurely or perhaps maybe not a well thought out decision, but to be able to give up your own child selfishly oh, as yeah. you know that you can't provide for them and know that they would be better off somewhere else is something that she said she has a newfound intense respect for and I would think the same way that it's something that I will never understand uh, a lot of us won't understand um, for better or worse
1: mm-hmm.
0: just something wow. I think that most people don't even think about it. a lot of people I think romanticized adoption in that one, one party is giving up a child because it's a burden being lifted off of them and another family receiving a child because there's a hole in their heart or it's filling some sort of void in their life. And yes, that's the nitty gritty of it. But when you look at it from a more broad or a more specific perspective there's a lot more to it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, Especially. we totally that's been kind of something that we've been looking at and kind of identifying with. Um I'm not sure if this is of interest to you, but there is uh kind of what a lot of people call as like the Adoptee Bible or the Adoptee handbook, the primal wound. And it's all about the psychology behind adoption. And a lot of it is just saying, like, kind of like you're saying is like, it's not like this one thing and this is the hole where someone has a hole in their family and this just fits in. It's not just straight across, just filling that. There are just like a bunch of intricate, there's a huge web of how this all goes down. And it's not as simple as, oh, this child, you know, is being, you know, placed for adoption and needs a home. Oh, perfect. This is perfect. Just put them here. You know, this is great. This is going to be all sunshine and rainbows. You know, it's never as simple as that.
0: Definitely. I'll have to check that book out. I haven't read it. I have a few few books on my shelf written by, I want to say Korean Americans, but at least Asian Americans talking about adoption. There's a lot of those stories out there. Mm -hmm. So I want to read up, but it's such a heavy and dense subject that you just have to be in the right mood for it. And I think (laughs) sometimes it ebbs and flows into our willingness and our interest into digging more about ourselves, digging into about adoption, talking about it because like I said, when you talk with certain people, you can either vibe about adoption really well, or you can clash very much so. And I think it's, really difficult to know before you go into that perspective because a lot of people are unpredictable. And I think both and it's not, and it's not just two, but both perspectives on adoption better or worse are valid because people, it's based off of experiences and not everyone has the great experience or has that horrible experience so of course it's hard to relate to one another if you didn't have the same experience or you just don't even have that same worldview
1: exactly that is something that erica and i have just been finding a lot as we've been doing this project especially with learning other people's perspectives and the as you kind of refer to for better or for worse we've I've seen a lot of the four worse in just like a general adoptee support group on Facebook, which I kind of, I go back to what you said about the specific Korean adoptee group having a different vibe. And I've noticed that also with the Colombian adoptee groups is it's such a different vibe being like general and a lot more um, domestic, also just around the world in general, but versus somewhere that is more focused in on where you're from I don't know what exactly that's about. I'm not sure if it is just the difference with international and domestic, but Erica and I have just seen from a very far off perspective or did before the folks that are adoptees that are mad, that are really angry about the fact that adoption exists and saying it's unethical, saying it's a a business that people are just profiting off of. We come from more of the side of, like you've said, like you're so thankful for your life and you're thankful for where you're at. Now we're kind of seeing, I don't know, we had an interview um, with a woman that adopted children from Haiti, which uh, at this point with where we're at with posting and everything has been up for a couple of months now, but it was a very different position where we were able to also see from an adoptive mother's perspective that there are sides of this that are unethical and that, are, that really toyed with our emotions as adoptees. And that was just really threw us for a loop. Um, and I think it's really hard for adoptees to see both sides. Now I'm very much at a point where it's, yes, there are very unethical sides of adoption, of adoption being a business. But yes, I am so thankful for my life, but I don't believe that it's that adoption should, could, or ever would really ever be abolished completely. I don't think that that's practical whatsoever.
0: No, it's not. And I think it's such a broad topic because we come Mm -hmm. from such different experiences. And I think one of the main recurring themes around adoption within the Korean-American adopted community, I think, revolves around our identity, and specifically with that, I think there's a lot of different people that come from white families and very privileged white families. I come from a very privileged white family myself, and I don't think a lot of people want to acknowledge their privilege. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't come from privilege too, like adoptees specifically, and that's that's perfectly fine. I think a lot of the adoptees that come from privilege – may not acknowledge that. And they may not even acknowledge part of their Korean identity. And for better or worse, their parents may not have introduced them to different adoptees or different people of their own race, ethnicity, and heritage background, language yeah. background. And it, that's where it can start to have issues. And then you talk about the emotional and mental abuse that those adoptees go through like I feel very fortunate I did not experience that whatsoever if anything my parents treated me too well they treated me more special and told me that I was more special than other children so in that sense I feel very fortunate and very well loved and it's really unique just having that perspective and I just find it really interesting reading through different Facebook posts from adoptees the yes. ones, and seeing how difficult and how different our lives were.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I guess just regarding growing up as an Asian adoptee in a white family in a small town of Wisconsin, like, did you ever feel kind of, kind of out of place or did you just have that, I guess with them having that culture and bringing that kind of to, to your family and having siblings, are also Korean kind of made you feel a little bit more in place or kind of I guess how did you feel regarding your identity did you ever struggle with that
0: so I think one of the things that really helped me when I was younger was having Korean siblings Mm -hmm. and seeing people that were like me around me Mm. and I'm from Eau Claire so Eau Claire I want to say is 90 plus percent white Caucasian so there wasn't too much diversity within Eau Claire. And I think that really plays into my identity. And I think my siblings would agree that me, like obviously we don't see ourselves as white, but at times it's easy to forget that you're Korean in that town. It's easy to forget what you look like and that you don't blend in fully when you're walking around target or in school that you look different than the other students. So that was something that was interesting. And for the most part, it was very positive growing up and people were very, I don't want to say accepting because there's not really much to accept with adoption, but that they were very open minded in the sense of adopted families or adopted children in families. And there were a couple other Korean American adopted children in families, some were mixed, but the majority were solely just Korean American adoptees as siblings, if that makes sense. Sort of like my family, where we don't my parents didn't have any biological children. So I would say that in terms of identity, it wasn't until I looked back that I sort of thought, well, I feel very fortunate that I had a very loving family and friends that really supported and enriched my life that I really didn't think about it too much until maybe late high school about my identity and in terms of what that meant and sort of what I'm talking about right now of that maybe whitewashed culture and that privilege aspect of adoption and just so many different things. I guess one thing more recently that I was thinking about in terms of identity and better or worse so I took Spanish for I want to say eight years and then I lived in Guatemala for a year and a half and I really got to know like Latin American culture a lot better than my own culture of Korean history and I think identity wise that really didn't screw me up but really played with me a little when I moved to Guatemala that they would really bring out like the racial slurs for like calling me, like pulling their eyes back or just, you know, like yelling at me that I'm Chinese, even though I'd explain, Oh no, I'm Korean American. And eventually I would just say, you know what? I'm American. And that's something I'm usually ashamed to say, but down there I was really proud to say like, you know, I'm from the U S no, I'm not from China. No, I'm from the U S. And when they would say, but your parents, what are they like? yep, they're from the U.S., because technically they are, and that would just throw them off. But then even just coming back, knowing that I know more about just Latin American culture and Guatemalan culture, even just from school and formal studies, the language itself, it's sort of sad to know that, oh, well, you know Spanish much better than you'll ever know Korean. You can communicate with anyone in Central and South America, but you can't communicate with your birth family. I think that's a really unique experience. And I'm very thankful for my language abilities, but I just wish that maybe I pushed myself a little more when I was younger to learn Korean.
1: And I think that is like, because I get where you're coming from with that completely, just because I wish I would have done more Spanish when I was younger so that now it wouldn't be such a challenge Obviously, though, um, you know, learning a Latin based language versus like Korean or any I, I attempted Chinese when I was in high school and it, I failed miserably. It was terrible. So like any of those, you know, types of languages that have a very different structure are so challenging. So, you know, I, I can't even imagine how you feel kind of trying to bridge the gap there. But And I think that's just kind of something with cultural identity that people just have to eventually, I don't know, figure out how they want to lean into it, you know, whether that be just something with either um, the food, you know, and the cuisine or, or the language or art or anything like that, that they're able to learn it in a different way and appreciate their culture in a different way. But I get where you're coming from with that kind of almost the guilt, I guess, that you feel like with wanting to connect so badly with your culture and you just so happen to fall into, you know, learning Spanish and living in Guatemala. I mean, that just kind of happened. It seems like as far as like what you were interested in.
0: Definitely. And it was a lot easier since that's something that I learned in high school and just followed through in college. And, you know, it's even continued through me now with my work, I would say 80% of the residents that I work with, with my current organization, are Spanish speaking. And so it's very necessary to use it even today with my job. And I'm very thankful because it's use it or lose it with language. It's just unique with having to use that. And I feel like it follows me and I'm very thankful for it. But also I just wish that my Korean heritage maybe just followed me a little more. I don't know. This is one of those things like, we're talking about it now, but we really don't realize these things until we say it out loud. And I don't know. I really don't think about it too much because I try and stay busy, but you know, maybe that's something I think that a lot of adoptees do. Like they do think about a lot, whether it's adoption or about their personal life or things just in general that we try and keep ourselves busy. And I think a lot of people could relate to that. Just keep yourself busy to keep, the intrusive thoughts out.
1: Mm-hmm. For Especially when it's a thought that's kind of a coulda, would kind of thing.
0: Definitely. And I'm constantly thinking about the future and I'm constantly thinking retrospectively and prospectively about what has happened and what's yet to come.
1: Mm-hmm. Same here. I think that might be kind of an adoption or like, I don't know, not to put a damper or darken things at all, but kind of also a trauma response.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I can say now, oh, I didn't go through any trauma, but we don't know what we went through as infants and what we went through because I was reading a few things and maybe you've read the same studies that a child being taken away from their mother, their birth mother is a traumatic experience. And who knows what trauma that brings upon us and for every one of us it's a different type of trauma for some of us it affects us very severely and some of us it affects us very minimally and I want to say that it affects me minimally but who knows
1: just because it's hard I think for adoptees especially those that are adopted at such a young age like even you being under a year is still young and especially just the fact that you were um, place or I guess um, I guess surrendered is kind of the term they use uh, to you know whatever home um, very early on and I mean regardless of that as an infant that is something that you're going to it's kind of hardwired
0: definitely and this is where I go and think okay let's just throw this to the back burner because when you think about it, it can really get to you sometimes yeah. and so I think think, at least just for me, I choose not to think about it. I have to definitely be in the right mood for it. And I don't, it is also very interesting to me, but I do, I'm very wishy-washy with it. Some days I'm really into it. Some days I just couldn't, couldn't care less and would rather just think about current things. So.
1: Well, and it's, it's not like you're going into something, like, I mean, being wishy-washy is normal also with just how you face these kinds of things. It's like, You're not going into somewhere deciding, I guess, just using food, for example, like a dessert, like, oh, do I want ice cream or cake for dessert? It's like you're going into something being like, do I want to face how my brain was wired when I was an infant or do I not? And it's like and I get that with going into reading those books. Like I have to be in in the right mood to be like, is this going to be? a read that is relatable and uplifting, or is it going to be something that makes me sad?
0: Definitely. And yeah, I think that goes into self-care very much Mm
2: -hmm. in terms
0: of your adoptee Mm self-care and each and every person goes through it a little differently. And for some people, this will happen maybe once and that's enough for them. But I think it's important to maybe think about it a little, think about, how your adoption has affected you for better. I think for a lot of us, it's for better or worse. And I'm even for us that had really good adoptions, maybe think about how has this affected me in different ways? How has this made me into a person that I am now? Because I think for a lot of us, it's thinking about those positive experiences, but also it's hard to think about negative experiences, but I still think it's something just to be explored a little. And I'm not um, saying search for it, search for negative experiences, but search for different mindsets, search for different perspectives within your own life.
2: Um, so, what advice would you give other adoptees based on your experience? Kind of just people your age, um, kids trying to navigate through adoption? other Korean adoptees, um, what advice would you have for them?
0: So for Korean adoptees specifically, I would say join Facebook, even if you don't have it. And Mm -hmm. search out different Korean adoptees groups. There's a lot of different ones. There's Korean American adoptees. There's Korean adoptees. And my sister and I were talking about this, actually. It can be a toxic place. So that goes into more advice of, Take a break when you need to and don't take anything that anyone says too seriously. Even myself, Mm -hmm. if you're listening to this as a Korean adoptee, my experience does not reflect anyone else's but my own. And I think we get absorbed into other people's stories, idealizing them into what could have been, um, especially the ones that are really positive. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have a positive experience or maybe the really negative ones and thinking, wow, adoption's absolutely horrible. And I think it's important to listen to these stories to create our own worldview, but also don't let that change your experience or Mm -hmm. change how you perceive things. I guess definitely it will create your own perception, but at the end of the day, you might just need to shut it off. And I know I've needed to do that several times with information at the tips of our fingers. It's really easy to get absorbed into it. And especially I'm on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z. I would say information is even more widely available. And I think we've run into this cancel culture and Mm. I think it's a very enlightening thing. I think it, can create a very positive environment, but also it can create a very toxic one of just harassment for specific groups. And you just have to be keeping your eye out for that, for your own mental health and do own mental check-ins to see, Hey, is what I'm reading now or what I'm, I'm experiencing good for me, or do I need to take a step back? So that's some advice I would have. And I think sometimes I need to take that for myself
2: that's great advice it's it's a lot as we've kind of mentioned a lot of times it's so emotional and so hard to navigate through it sometimes and you don't even know where you're going with all the information you're gaining so I think that is wonderful advice to just take a step back at times and self-care is huge Mm -hmm. definitely well I
1: just have one last question is there um just to kind of end on we always like to ask uh if there is one or you know a couple things that you wish that people would realize about adoption either kind of going against a stereotype or if there's a phrase maybe that you hear that you don't like anything like that that you could share with us
0: i'll precursor this by saying i feel like i've had a very privileged and fortunate adoption story so a lot of the experiences that i've had are very positive so take whatever i say with a grain of salt I think it's important for people to go into adoption with an open mind and know that there's a ton of different experiences out there that you might hear my story and think, wow, it's really uplifting. And then hear someone else's and think, wow, that's a really dark story. And that's really saddening. I think that's a reality of adoption. It varies so much. So maybe that's why I had such difficulty coming up with a response to this because In life, we say this is not a one size fits all, and that definitely applies to adoption. There's so much intersectionality when it comes to adoption, so many different categories and boxes that we attempt to fit ourselves into or attempt to fit people into just because they're this age, they're this nationality of an adoptee. They were adopted at this age. It's a boy, girl And I think it's just a very complicated issue that I would encourage just anyone to learn more information about, even other adoptees, because I know, as you were saying earlier, you're hearing a lot of different responses about perceptions of adoption. And I think as adoptees, if you haven't pursued other worldviews and different perspectives, that you can get caught into your own very quickly.
2: Wow, that was very well said. Yeah, you nailed thank it you. for not having anything. like. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you so much, Brad, for joining us uh, on today's interview. Um, this has been really enlightening to uh, just kind of touch on a different type of like interracial um, adoption, and especially with you having siblings uh, from the same place, and such great parents that clearly really nurtured the cultural side of things. So thank you so much for being here today.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Erica and Risa. It's been really interesting joining you all and sharing my story.
2: I love how Brad ended the interview with just stating that every experience is so different because that is what we have found time and time again. And it was just a really good interview to see a different side and speaking to him on his culture and something we have no idea about. Um, you know the similarities and differences are still there, yeah, I think it was having it be very similar to our point of view as far as
1: not having a toxic positivity, but having the element of feeling thankful, feeling gracious, and happy with our lives and and everything like that, and feeling like we are where we're supposed to be, mm-hmm. and not feeling so like we got to, we get to process some different things from this one versus some others in the past.
2: And don't take that as a negative thing because first of all, we love hearing everyone's stories. I mean, getting different perspectives and sides of things we didn't experience is something that we need to educate and culture ourselves about mm-hmm. as well because we did get very, you know, we are very thankful for our situation, but as he mentioned, as a lot of adoptees mentioned, it's not that easy and it's not that straightforward either. Mm-hmm. Even though our overall very positive situations, we have a lot of trauma and hurt and things we process daily and to bring adoption up in our podcast, you know, a couple times a month, a couple times a week when we're planning certain things, it does bring those different wounds out that we try to cover. And so We just appreciate all the support and as much as we support you, uh, you supporting us it means everything to us. So thank you so much. And just continue to support us and subscribe to our podcast. Follow us at Colombian Influence. That is C-O-L-O. M-B-I-N. Until next time.